Chapter Thirteen of *The Lair of the White Worm*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Lair of the White Worm*, Chapter Thirteen: Ulanga's Hallucinations. During the last few days, Lady Arabella had been getting exceedingly impatient. Her debts, always pressing, were growing to an embarrassing amount. The only hope she had of comfort in life was a good marriage. But the good marriage on which she had fixed her eye did not seem to move quickly enough. Indeed, it did not seem to move at all, in the right direction. Edgar Caswall was not an ardent wooer. From the very first he seemed defensile, but he had been keeping to his own room ever since his struggle with Mimi Watford. On that occasion Lady Arabella had shown him in an unmistakable way what her feelings were. Indeed, she had made it known to him, in a more overt way than pride should allow, that she wished to help and support him. The moment when she had gone across the room to stand beside him in his mesmeric struggle had been the very limit of her voluntary action. It was quite bitter enough, she felt, that he did not come to her, but now that she had made that advance she felt that any withdrawal on his part would, to a woman of her class, be nothing less than a flaming insult. Had she not classed herself with his nigger servant, an unreformed savage? Had she not shown her preference for him at the festival of his homecoming? Had she not—Lady Arabella was cold-blooded, and she was prepared to go through all that might be necessary of indifference, and even insult, to become Chateline of Castrorigus. In the meantime, she would show no hurry. She must wait. She might, in an unostentatious way, come to him again. She knew him now, and could make a keen guess at his desires with regard to Lilla Watford. With that secret in her possession, she could bring pressure to bear on Caswall, which would make it no easy matter for him to evade her. The great difficulty was how to get near him. He was shut up within his castle, and guarded by a defence of convention which she could not pass without danger of ill repute to herself. Over this question she thought and thought for days and nights. At last she decided that the only way would be to go to him openly at Castra Regis. Her rank and position would make such a thing possible, if carefully done. She could explain matters afterwards if necessary. Then when they were alone she would use her arts and her experience to make him commit himself. After all, he was only a man, with a man's dislike of difficult or awkward situations. She felt quite sufficient confidence in her own womanhood to carry her through any difficulty which might arise. From Diana's grove she heard each day the luncheon gong from Castor Regis sound, and knew the hour when the servants would be in the back of that house. She would enter the house at that hour, and, pretending that she could not make anyone hear her, would seek him in his own rooms. The tower was, she knew, away from all the usual sounds of the house and moreover she knew that the servants had strict orders not to interrupt him when he was in the turret chamber. She had found out, partly by the aid of an opera-glass, and partly by judicious questioning, that several times lately a heavy chest had been carried to and from his room, and that it rested in the room each night. She was, therefore, confident that he had some important work on hand which would keep him busy for long spells. Meanwhile, another member of the household at Castor Regis had schemes which he thought were working to fruition, 
A man in the position of a servant has plenty of opportunity of watching his betters and forming opinions regarding them. Ulanga was in his way a clever, unscrupulous rogue, and he felt that with things moving round him in this great household there should be opportunities of self-advancement. Being unscrupulous and stealthy, and a savage, he looked to dishonest means. He saw plainly enough that Lady Arabella was making a dead set at his master, and he was watchful of the slightest sign of anything which might enhance this knowledge. Like the other men in the house, he knew of the carrying to and fro of the great chest, and had got it into his head that the care exercised in its porterage indicated that it was full of treasure. He was forever lurking around the turret-rooms on the chance of making some useful discovery. But he was as cautious as he was stealthy, and took care that no one else watched him. It was thus that the negro became aware of Lady Arabella's venture into the house, as she thought unseen. He took more care than ever, since he was watching another, that the positions were not reversed. More than ever he kept his eyes and ears open and his mouth shut. Seeing Lady Arabella gliding up the stairs toward his master's room, he took it for granted that she was there for no good, and doubled his watching intentness and caution. Ulanga was disappointed, but he dared not exhibit any feeling lest it should betray that he was hiding. Therefore he slunk downstairs again noiselessly, and waited for a more favourable opportunity of furthering his plans. It must be borne in mind that he thought that the heavy trunk was full of valuables, and that he believed that Lady Arabella had come to try to steal it. His purpose of using it for his own advantage, the combination of these two ideas, was seen later in the day. Ulanga secretly followed her home. He was an expert at this game, and succeeded admirably on this occasion. He watched her enter the private gate of Diana's Grove, and then, taking a roundabout course and keeping out of her sight, he at last overtook her in a thick part of the grove where no one could see the meeting. Lady Arabella was much surprised. She had not seen the negro for several days, and had almost forgotten his existence. Ulanga would have been startled had he known and been capable of understanding the real value placed on him, his beauty, his worthiness, by other persons, and compared it with the value in these matters in which he held himself. Doubtless, Ulanga had had his dreams like other men. In such cases he saw himself as a young sun-god, as beautiful as the eye of dusky or even white womanhood had ever dwelt upon. He would have been filled with all noble and captivating qualities, or those regarded as such in West Africa. Women would have loved him, and would have told him so in the overt and fervid manner usual in affairs of the heart, in the shadowy depths of the forest of the Gold Coast. Ulanga came close behind Lady Arabella, and in a hushed voice suitable to the importance of his task, and in deference to the respect he had for her and the place, began to unfold the story of his love. Lady Arabella was not usually a humorous person, but no man or woman of the white race could have checked the laughter which rose spontaneously to her lips. The circumstances were too grotesque the contrast too violent, for subdued mirth. The man, a debased specimen of one of the most primitive races of the earth, and of an ugliness which was simply devilish, the woman of high degree, beautiful, accomplished, 
She thought that her first moment's consideration of the outrage—it was nothing less in her eyes—had given her the full material for thought. But every instant after threw new and varied lights on the affront. Her indignation was too great for passion. Only irony or satire would meet the situation. Her cold, cruel nature helped, and she did not shrink to subject this ignorant savage to the merciless fire-lash of her scorn. Ulanga was dimly conscious that he was being flouted, but his anger was no less keen because of the measure of his ignorance. So he gave way to it, as does a tortured beast. He ground his great teeth together, raved, stamped, and swore in barbarous tongues, and with barbarous imagery. Even Lady Arabella felt that it was well she was within reach of help, or he might have offered her brutal violence, even have killed her. "'Am I to understand,' she said with cold disdain, so much more effective to wound than hot passion, "'that you are offering me your love, your love?' For reply he nodded his head. The scorn of her voice, in a sort of baleful hiss, sounded and felt like the lash of a whip. "'And you dared—you, a savage, a slave, the basest thing in the world of vermin—take care. I don't value your worthless life more than I do that of a rat or a spider. Don't let me ever see your hideous face here again, or I shall rid the earth of you.' As she was speaking, she had taken out her revolver and was pointing it at him. In the immediate presence of death his impudence forsook him, and he made a weak effort to justify himself. His speech was short, consisting of single words. To Lady Arabella it sounded mere gibberish. But it was in his own dialect and meant love, marriage, wife. From the intonation of the words she guessed, with her woman's quick intuition at their meaning, but she quite failed to follow, when, becoming more pressing, he continued to urge his suit in a mixture of the grossest animal passion and ridiculous threats. He warned her that he knew she had tried to steal his master's treasure, and that he had caught her in the act, but if she would be his, he would share the treasure with her, and they could live in luxury in the African forests. But if she refused, he would tell his master— who would flog and torture her and then give her to the police, who would kill her. End of chapter 13 Recording by Elliot Miller